Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are following up our last episode on faith to the aid of reason with a case study of Lutheran-Slovak theologian Samuel Stefan Osuski, who lived through the 20th century and saw its worst. Now, I have to warn you right up front, dear listener, that we will be talking again about Nazis, and you've probably noticed that we talk a lot about Nazis on here. In fact, there's this thing called Godwin's Law, which states that in any online discussion, sooner or later, the topic will end up with one side accusing the other of being Nazis, and then the conversation will be over, and whoever made the accusation of Nazism will be somehow decreed the winner. We are trying to rise to a much higher level of discourse when we engage these things. Uh, But part of it, of course, has to do with the fact that... um, um, my grandfather, dad's dad, was a serviceman during the Second World War fighting Nazis. And we have lived in Slovakia, which was taken over by the Nazis as a puppet state. And of course, for Lutherans, with the hard history of anti-Judaism um, and how it supported anti-Semitism, these have been poignantly close issues um, for dad and for me as well. So please bear with us. But we promise not only Nazis this time, also communists. So it will be a little bit more wide-ranging in its critiques. Very good. Let's go. Okay, great. So, Dad, why don't you just start with a little bit of background of our our family relationship to Slovakia and how you became involved very directly with Slovak Lutheran theology, leading to your discovery of this fellow Samuel Stefan Osuski. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm both on my father and my mother's side. I'm descended from Slovak immigrants to America. And uh, my father's parents especially, I have very strong and vivid memories of, and they lived in a Slovak uh, immigrant uh, community on the border of Connecticut and New York, and I knew them very well and uh, was well acquainted with uh, them. And my father uh, was a pastor in the Synod of Evangelical uh, Lutheran Churches, SELC, which was the non-geographical Slovak Synod Uh, affiliated with the Missouri Synod uh, Lutherans. And that was my youthful church and childhood growing up. We learned to sing a Christmas carol, Chaz Radosti, time of joy, time of gladness, a Christmas carol. And I knew what we call kitchen Slovak, you know, the kind of cute things you can say without a real comprehension of the language. I remember even Grandpa, when I would uh, be, do something naughty, saying to me, Ti hunsut, like, you rascal. Yeah, That's right. a Slovak expression. I'm sure you heard it more than I did. They would, my grandmother would say, Ti hunsut na nič hodni, which means, you good-for-nothing <laughs> rascal. <laughs> so anyway, various circumstances in life led me in my early 40s to reverse immigrate to Slovakia. After the fall of communism, there was a radical influx of young people into the theological faculty, having religion having been suppressed for so long in that country. And they were in need of professors, and they wanted stimulation from the outside. So for six years, I served on the Protestant theological faculty of Comenius University in Bratislava, where I mastered the Slovak language and was actually teaching full-time in Slovak by the second or third year I was there. It was in that context I was learning about, on the ground, about World War II and specifically about the Holocaust and Slovakia's role 
in the Holocaust. I was taking students uh, to, to Auschwitz and things like that. Uh, and I was sitting in the faculty lounge with a history professor named Daniel Vesely and talking about some of these things. And he told me about a remarkable person, Samuel Stefan Osuski, who had been the bishop of the western half of the Slovak church and the leading intellectual at, a, a the, at the theological faculty. And he told me that in 1937, in the city of Ružomberok in North Slovakia, he had lectured to the pastor's conference on the philosophy of fascism, Bolshevism, and Hitlerism. And he told me it was a remarkable lecture which predicted everything to come. And I said, wow, I have to read that. And I read it at the time, and I was blown away. And this was 1937, you 1937, said? 1937, yes, when Hitler was still pretending to be a friend of peace and simply a champion of German rights. In any case, Osuski foresaw nothing good for us. He said, democracy is on the retreat throughout the world. Slovakia at that time was a part of the only successful uh, democratic state carved out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of World War I. And uh, he saw no future for democracy. He saw no future for Lutherans. He saw no future for Lutherans in a world in which triumphalistic, what he called triumphalistic political Catholicism in cahoots with fascism was on the rise in Spain, in Italy, in Hungary, in Poland, in Croatia. The list could go on. And he saw no future for Slavs, Slavic people. I think it's it's not often known that Hitler hated Slavs as much as he hated Jews and Gypsies or Roma. He did. He uh, hated them from his time in Vienna as a young man, where of course was which was a, a multicultural mix, mixing of peoples. He didn't like Slavic people, and they were untermenschen. They were subhuman, fit for slavery, or perhaps selectively culled out for breeding purposes. So I had to read this lecture, and when I did, I was blown away by its uh, prediction of the future. I didn't mention his, uh, what he had to say about Bolshevism, but I'll get to that as time goes on. So I remember we well, I actually um, published your translation of it in Lutheran Forum back when I was editor there. We'll try to get a link to that up in the show notes. Um, but it turns out that Osuski had a lot more to say, and you ended up writing a whole book um, tracing his career. And what turns out to be really interesting, as I recall from reading the book, is that there's this you know moment of incredible lucidity when he sees the evils coming with amazing and disturbing prescience. But he wasn't like a straightforward thinker who, like, from the beginning was anti-Bolshevik, anti-fascist, and saw it coming and had this kind of uh, prophetic critique, but that, in fact, his 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 thinking career took a lot of twists and turns, both before 1937, but afterwards, after the war, before the rise of the Stalinist empire, and then onwards from there. And I think you ended up, as I recall, you ended up seeing a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, maybe it's, it's saying too much to call it a flip-flop, but there's kind of a movement in his thought back and forth between a kind of cultural Christianity and a kind of, you know, prophetic apocalyptic critique of cultural Christianity. So why don't you start walking us 
through, uh, you know, where he started and why he kept making this sort of these turns back and forth and how that tracked with the history he lived through. Yeah, great. The subtitle of my book is Between Humanist Philosophy and Apocalyptic Theology, which describes that tension that you're referring to. Uh, When I had originally proposed from humanist philosophy to apocalyptic theology, a colleague in Bratislava, uh, Dr. Peter Gajic, objected and said, no, he never moved away from humanist philosophy. He moved between humanist philosophy and apocalyptic theology. And I accepted that correction. Would this be something like in our Acts episode, we talked about the salvation history versus apocalyptic approaches to New Testament? Is that him somehow navigating those two two alternatives back and forth in his own life? Can you see a parallel there? Yeah, I, I can see a parallel, parallel there because a lot of the progressive theologies of history ultimately have their roots in the book of Acts as opposed to Pauline apocalyptic which sees an ongoing uh, conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, whereas the book of Acts kinds of gives, gives us a picture of all history eventually being subdued and gradually converted into the kingdom of God. So that would be kind of the ancestor of, of Christian humanism in Western civilization, that view. And Osuski was definitely a, a part of that. He was a pastor in World War I. He had had some education in Germany. He went to the German strong, uh, the Lutheran stronghold of Erlangen, uh, then returned to Slovakia where he was a pastor during World War I. And he reports that, it, you know, they, they had huge congregations. He had 400 young men in military service during, I think, in 1916 when he wrote the book. And the book is really kind of a prophetic, uh, almost Karl Barth-like critique of the insanity of modern uh, mechanized trench warfare, this bloodbath. The first book is called Religion and War, and he has a poignant section in it in which he just lists, he selectively quotes German theologians kowtowing to the uh, German war aims and so forth, and it's, it's, it's powerful in its objectivity and silence. He just lets these Germans say, we're fighting for God and, and the Kaiser, and no matter what the sacrifice, it's worth it. And he contrasts that with the attitudes of the Slovak Lutherans, whose leading intellectual poet was a man named Martin Razus, uh, who, who wrote wrenching poetry about war deaths and bereavements and so forth and so on. So the first book is a kind of a prophetic protest against militarism and war. From someone who was counseling young men and seeing them go off to die. Exactly. He gets his education then at the end of the war in in the liberal Charles University uh, theological faculty in Prague. Oh, so wait, so he was educated after he was already a pastor? Well, they didn't. his education was not all in a sequence. Okay, okay. It was in bits and chunks because he had to support himself as a pastor in the meantime. Uh, he also went on to get advanced degrees in sociology and law. So aside wow. from his basic theological training, he got a degree in philosophy from Charles University and then later degrees in sociology and law. So he was quite the polymath. Right. Brilliant. Wow. 
And in Charles University, he really kind of internalized uh, this uh, liberal theology of the 19th century, this progressive theology that every day and every way we're getting a little bit better. Uh, rising beasts rather than fallen angels, as it was polemically put against the, against the Pauline, Augustinian, Lutheran tradition. Rising angels, not fallen beasts. And believe it or not, with the Versailles Treaty and the division of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, Osuski believed that liberal theology had a new lease on life. So he was immediately drafted into service as an educator uh, in backwards Slovakia. And his second book that I discuss in my book is called History of Religions. No, it's History of Religion, I think, in the singular. And here you can see the liberal theological scheme in all its pristine glory. Now, what's so striking about this is that it comes after the prophetic critique of failed Christianity in World War I. Now, with the new Czechoslovak democracy, uh, there's a new chance to do Christendom the right way. So it's like a new Constantinian establishment. Now that the suffering and persecution is over, we can get on with the real job of, of building the kingdom here and now. Building a Christian civilization. And, of course, one of the great challenges to that is the concomitant modern knowledge of pluralism and the various religions of the world. What do you do with the gazillions of human beings who are not Christians and never will be Christians? Are they all going to hell? What do you do with Hindus and Shintos and so forth and so on? And this was a fundamental challenge. And so as an educator, he had both a requirement to teach uh, backwards uh, Slovaks about the history of the world religions and also to relate it to his own belief in the superiority of Christian civilization. And so in this book, he kind of sketched out the typical progressivist scheme that all of history is a religious evolution in ideas about God, which achieve greater, greater clarity uh, in representing till they finally come to the supreme representation of God in Protestant Christianity God is love. So all roads lead not to, not to Rome, but to Protestant Christianity. Right. Now, let me ask you a, a quick question here. So, of course, we can look back and say that's pretty preposterous for the time with the rise of Hitler coming and World War II and the evils of the communist regime and all that. But do you think, in your own judgment, that someone who had lived through World War I and issued this prophetic critique and then saw the rise of the democratic Czechoslovak state should have known better and should have resisted that return to the cultural Christianity and progressivistic history of religions up to Protestantism and so forth? Should he have known better? What do you think? This is was the typical argument between followers, the, the majority Lutherans, in Germany and following them, Osuski in Slovakia on the one side, and the followers of renegade theologian Karl Barth on the other side. Barth, of course, in his commentary on Romans, devastated the belief in Christian civilization. And the kind of knee-jerk Lutheran reaction was, oh no, we're way too invested in this history, 
and we have to make it work. And I think Osuski fell into that camp. He was he very much resisted uh, Barth's theology in this early period. Do you think it seemed to him like a council of despair, and that's why he didn't exactly. like it? Exactly. He took it as a council of despair, a loss of faith in human reason, and in God's providence. So that is why he chose to get his degrees in these secular disciplines of philosophy and sociology, even though he was a committed churchman and a self-conscious Lutheran. In the pre-1930s period, that meant standing up for the great modern tradition of Protestant theology over against this disruptor, Karl Barth. So you can see it sympathetically as him saying, well, prophetic critique can be kind of selfish and irresponsible, and I'm going to get my hands dirty because the world needs care, and I'm going to be part of caring for it. I wish it were that good. I think it was more the idea that all roads lead to Protestant. People will eventually realize that Protestant Christianity is the supreme evolution in religion. Right. But I mean, Bart was a, a Protestant theologian. I mean, was it because he was reformed, maybe, that there was a certain distrust of him? Yeah, I think that was in Swiss, you know, so there were <laughs> a couple, couple of reasons there. Anyway, let's go on with Osuski. Uh, by the time the 1930s, Osuski is widely revered as the most significant intellectual in the Slovak Lutheran Church. And he has a leading position at the theological faculty, and he's elected the bishop of the Western District. But first he had to go through a battle with the fundamentalist. There was a certain pastor, Struharik, who initiated a polemic against some professor in Prague who apparently denied the virgin birth from Mary of Christ. And Osuski, to this pastor's dissatisfaction, did not sufficiently denounce, renounce, or distance himself from this professor in Prague. And so in the paper, in the pages of their church journal, this pastor Struharik laid down a gauntlet to Osuski and says, well, what is it? Do you believe or don't you believe? And Osuski uh, went through the proper church channels and explained himself that it's not that he doubts the virgin birth, but that he wants to understand it with his reason. And that was good enough uh, at the time for Osuski's supervising uh, bishop. So that was definitely a reason to the aid of faith. Right, move. exactly. Exactly, right. It was reason to the aid of faith in the classic 19th century paradigm. And that was Osuski's uh, defense against the fundamentalists. They later reconciled, and, and Struharik and he and were on the same side in the resistance to Hitler. But he had to go through this conflict with fundamentalism. And that allows me to make a particular point. I see among a lot of my theological friends over these 40 years a kind of nostalgia. If only we could go back to Thomism, whether it's St. Thomas's Thomism or the Thomism of Reformed Orthodoxy. If only we could go back to, I'm being facetious, a simpler time with a simpler God that would stand up as a timeless truth against all the relativism and vulgarism of our contemporary debased culture. And I regard all of this as, as pretty much nostalgia. And I admire Osuski for not giving in to a fundamentalist challenge. 
and I admire Asuski for insisting that faith that is not understood is blind and therefore not faith at all. If faith does not know its object, if faith does not know in whom it believes and why it believes in this one as opposed to another, that is simply blind faith. And blind faith is not real faith because it doesn't know what it's doing. You could as, might as well say the moon is an orangutan and the orangutan is dressed in diapers. Believe it or not. <laughs> well, you said it. I believe it. That right. settles that, it. That settles it. It's just, it's unbelievably stupid, but, but let's not go beyond that. The, the point is, is that theologians, Sarah, like you and me, we are post-critical, post-liberal, not pre-critical. And we shouldn't yearn for it either. It wasn't better by definition. Right. Yeah. As you've often said, you can't put the genie back in the bottle once it's out again. So, and, and as I think I said in our, our last episode, all times are God's time, this as much as any other. Or as R- Rudolf Bultmann said, again, uh, uh, the uh, the boogeyman and a lot of in the eyes of a lot of these uh, these nostalgic theologians, Rudolf Bultmann said, nobody can choose their own worldview. It's given to them by their place in history. You can't create a worldview or choose a worldview. It's a, it's a, it's a self-deception. All right, so Asuski then in the 1930s has now, he's a prominent guy, He's published the first history of Slovak philosophy in which he ransacks the sources in order to prove that there's been a a Slovak national consciousness going back through the ages and so forth, because there's a lot of agitation for the independence of Slovakia from Moravia and Bohemia, the Czech lands. Uh, And he's against that. He wants to keep the Czechoslovak Federation, but he wants it preserved in such a way that there's greater cultural autonomy for Slovakia. Yeah, this is the whole history of Slovak nationalism and its relationship to the Czech lands. He's he's just a, a standard entry in that long debate. That's right. Whereas a very charismatic Roman Catholic priest named Hlinka, uh, and he, Osuski and Hlinka were friends because in a way they were both Slovak patriots. Slovak, uh, interesting, Osuski in 1910 got in trouble in Bratislava at the high school, the gymnasium that he attended for anti-Hungarian a- a- agitation. This is when Slovakia was still a province of Upper Hungary. And so he was a Slovak patriot, but he was also committed to the Czechoslovak Federation, whereas Hlinka often sounded like he was agitating for uh, separation and the independence of Slovakia. Hlinka died in the mid-1930s, and his party was taken over by clerical fascists on the one side and real Nazis on the other side. And this was the group that came to power in late 1930s when Hitler basically demanded the, the separation of Slovakia from the Czech lands and said, if you don't become an independent state, Slovakia, will occupy you just like we just occupied the Czech lands. And so Slovakia then becomes an independent state headed by a Roman Catholic priest named Josef Tiso and his Hlinka National People's Party, a fascist, a clerical fascist, a Catholic fascist regime, authoritarian regime, 
militarily allied with Nazi Germany, though in reality a puppet. Yeah, I was going to say it, it is officially an independent state, but in reality it's a puppet state. Right. Though it did have a certain kind of interesting independence that I'll mention in a minute. So Osuski is living through this crisis and trying to deal with it uh, as best he can. And his minority Lutheran church and his own public protestations about the behavior of the regime increasingly comes under attack in the fascist press in Slovakia. And this culminates in one of the most tragic and shameful episodes in Slovak history. The Hlinka party demonized Jews as parasites and money grubbers. And its basic critique of Jews was that they always allied themselves with the Hungarian oppressors. They got rich in this alliance. They owned the factories, the taverns, and they exploited the poor working Slovaks. Right, because they were the usurers, because Christians weren't allowed to be usurers. So they forced the Jews to take up the dirty work that they wouldn't do themselves. And then the Jews got rich on it. And then they turned around and blamed them for it. Very old European Christian um, accusation against Jews. That, that yeah. go back to the segregation of Jews from Christian society and so forth. Without going into all that mess, it suffi- suffices to point out here that the Hlinka regime's attack on Jews was almost entirely based on economics, economic exploitation, and to a lesser degree on religion. Race did not apparently play a great factor ideologically, though you can see racist elements in some of the cartoons and propaganda posters and so forth. So the first act of the Hlinka regime was to deprive Jews of their property rights because they had their wealth was allegedly ill-gotten gain and put Jews into labor camps and teach them how to make a living with their hands so they don't feel superior to the working man Slovaks. But I think the Slovaks, at least at first, really believed it was for economic crimes and they were going to learn economic lessons. They had no sense right. of it being death camps or, or that kind of thing. No, what they weren't death camps. They were labor camps in Slovakia. Well, then, you know, when Hitler decides to invade Russia, Then he puts his thumb on Slovakia. You're my military ally. You have to send divisions to the Russian front and fight along our side. Well, these Slovak decisions proved to be a military disaster for the Nazis, and half of them defected to the Russians. Right, because they had this strong Slavic identity going on. Right, so that wasn't working out real well. Uh, And in 1942, after Auschwitz had come online and was operating full blast, Hitler puts the screws on Slovakia and says, you have to deport all your Jews to Poland. And he tells the government, Tiso of Slovakia, that they're being resettled in labor camps in Poland. And Tiso, who knows, self-deceptively or blindly believed Hitler. Like so many Catholics, he said, Hitler is the devil I know, Stalin I don't know, So Hitler is useful in resisting Bolshevism. So Slovakia, to its shame, actually paid the Nazis the costs of transporting its Jews to Poland. I think it was 500 Reichsmark per Jew. Yeah, something like that. It was just appalling. And 
So by April of 1942, there were about 110,000 Jews in Slovakia. By April of 1942, the deportations begin. And the Slovak Lutherans knew, they were aware that these were not labor camps, but death camps. There was knowledge of that through the grapevine. And so they began to wonder what should be our attitude towards the Jewish question. And in May of 1942, Osuski and his colleague Bishop Choberda published a pastoral letter on the Jewish question, which I've also translated. It's available in English. And this is a complicated story because in a Catholic state, as Tiso pretended Slovakia to be, citizenship was conferred by baptism. And so if Jews were baptized, they were no longer Jews, but Catholics or Christians and not subject to deportation. Now, this was highly unusual. The Nazis elsewhere said a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Baptism changes nothing. But in Tiso, Slovakia, baptism exempted you from deportation. So religion trumped race in right. Tiso, Slovakia. Tiso, Catholic uh, fascist Slovakia. So naturally, there were a lot of Jews seeking salvation through baptism. A literal salvation, yeah. right. right. And the uh, fascist press started attacking the Lutheran clergy, saying they're selling baptism. The Jews are buying baptism. The Lutheran pastors are taking bribes. And so the presenting problem for the pastoral letter is what should Lutheran pastors do about Jews who want to be baptized? And it goes through a long discussion of taking this seriously and what it means, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that they were affirmative about sincere baptism as conversion to the Christian faith. Now, you might complain in hindsight that wasn't perceptive enough under the circumstances, but this, the pastoral letter also goes on to denounce the cruel and inhuman behavior of the de deportations and that we have to fear the judgment of God for what we are allowing to happen on our soil, this great injustice to the Jews. So do you suppose that meant pastors weren't going to push too hard to find out the level of sincerity involved in the request for baptism? I think that probably happened a lot. And some years ago, I remember memoirs were published about how Lutherans were involved in saving Jews, just as Lutherans were involved in uh, the partisan resistance. At this point, in 1942, you have to remember, Hitler's Nazi swastika flies from the Atlantic coast, from France to Norway, all the way to the outskirts of Moscow, right? Hitler has conquered the European world, so it seems. He appears to be unstoppable. Appears to be unstoppable. And in that year, Osuski publishes the first of two wartime books, and what's so surprising about this is that he turns away from philosophy, sociology, and law, though he brought all those critical thinking skills with him. And he publishes a book first on, on the book of Revelation. And this is what I call the apocalyptic turn, in which he asks the question, what are Christians to do 
when the beast seems to be all-powerful and is dominating and apparently victorious. So enough said about that. I just want to mention that. He, he turns to the Bible and he turns to the book of Revelation and its apocalyptic to interpret the apparent triumph of Nazism. Two years later, as it is becoming evident that the Nazis are, going, are being defeated and will be defeated, he turns to a more inward question about the suffering of the innocent in war and publishes a second impressive commentary on the book of Job. And here again, to take up in a sensitive way the problem, the question of theodicy, where in history is the justice of God when the innocent suffer and the evil seem to be triumphant or to prosper. So with those two books, Osuski has moved decisively away from his humanist liberal philosophy, philosophical theology, and returned to a biblical preaching theology with an apocalyptic cast. I'm struck that it's now that he's back in a war, the Second World War, as it would be known, um, that he goes back to this apocalyptic turn and to, um, you know, biblical interpretation. And so, I mean, it, it sort of begs the obvious question, is apocalyptic mainly useful for wartime? And then when war is over, you need to get back to uh, kingdom building? Or <laughs> how do you, I mean, how do you see the, the interrelation between the two? And as we've mentioned many times, you know, Constantine puts an end to the period of persecution. And so now it's time to, you know, build the build up Christendom. And, you know, and then there's more war and Christendom gets called into question. And then war ends and Christendom comes back into vogue. Like, how do you uh, do, are, are the genres specific to the circumstances or should we be having more, you know, kingdom building in wartime and more apocalyptic in peacetime? Or, or I'm just curious what, what we can do with Osuski's movement back and forth between these, these uh, takes on, on the world around him. I think the dream of Christendom dies with difficulty. I think especially... Well, it's obviously true in Byzantium and Eastern Christianity, uh, as well as it, it's, it's true in Western Christianity. The dream of a so-called Christian civilization is deep within us, and it does not die with, without difficulty. But what would society look like otherwise, a society that Christians could gladly and freely participate in? I suppose that's the... Is that where we're headed, trying to figure out? That, that there is a huge there is a huge problem here, and I'm not thinking we can solve it right now. Can it be solved at all? I don't know. I, I do think that the illusions and self deceptions of Christian progressivism should be so obvious to us today. I can I can actually kind of relate this in my own to my own experience in life. I was so disgusted with American culture by 1993 when we moved to Slovakia. And I wanted so much to uh, find a better way in Europe. And after six years in Europe, you know, my joke was to people who would ask me, what have you learned by living in Europe for six years? And my joke was, I've learned all the good reasons why our ancestors immigrated. <laughs> And then, oh, I came, then I came back to America just in time for the election of George W. Bush. 
And I had a kind of a, a re renewed sense of American belief in America with him, which was crushed by his mishandling of the Iraq war and so forth and so on. So I find this oscillation in my own self. You know, oh, yeah. I was when I was a young student at Union, I wondered every day whether I was a Marxist. And then after the craziness of Union Seminary, uh, I up and joined the United States Navy and became a chaplain in the United States Naval Reserve. So <laughs> these oscillations have gone back and forth in my own life between apocalyptic and humanist philosophy. Interesting. Yeah. So that's just my personal uh, right. illustration. But I mean, it seems to suggest that there isn't some happy Hegelian synthesis awaiting us on the other side of these two, but there's the, maybe the oscillation is, is just the expression of the inbuilt contradictions of, you know, providential history run by sinners or something well, like that. The canon contains both Paul and Luke. Right, right. So you have to recognize the difference between them with and without falsely synthesizing them, I think. Right, right. And it doesn't it suggests that there's no there's never going to be a, a comfortable and easy place to land. We are but strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Nevertheless, we really are pilgrims, and it really is on the earth. We're not, you know, exiting early. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's food for thought. We'll have to think about that some more. So anyway, Osuski too, after writing these biblical books and during the war, finishes the war and immediately comes out, just like after World War One, from the prophetic critique of war, in War and Religion to the History of Religions book in the early 20s. Now, after Job and Revelation during the war, he comes out with a book called Apologetics, in which he argues that Christianity is the superior religion. Huh, all over again. No, he, no let me back that up. Religion is superior to atheism. Christianity is the superior religion. And Protestantism is the supreme form of Christianity. Well, right, and, and now he's, he sees that the Bolsheviks, the Soviet communists, have all the power after the, the defeat of Hitler, and they're on their way to power. And so he's writing his apologetics basically addressed to the communists. In what way? Well, he was trying to convince them that at least we Protestant Christians were on the right side of history. Oh, man, that was a bad bargain, Osuski. Well, actually, Husak, who was a Slovak and the first president of communist Czechoslovakia, uh, after the communists came to power, called the Slovak Lutheran church leaders to Prague and met with them. And uh, he said to them something like this, you know, you Lutherans have had a very progressive history, but just be wary. What was progressive yesterday is reactionary today. Oh. <laughs> well, and Husak would find that out himself because he got tossed in prison by the Stalinists and then ended up being the guy who took over for the communists when Dubček was kicked out. So he got screwed over continually, and yet he never woke up. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we don't know much in America about this communist history. We should know much more than we do. Because we make Nazis into the demons and incarnation of evil. They certainly were evil people and did evil things. But if you had lived in the 30s, your existential dilemma was 
Stalin or Hitler? Right. Frying pan or fire? <laughs> right, exactly. So anyway, Osuski then I think is targeted by the communists because he published this book, Apologetics, uh, which made it clear that there was an alternative to communist ideologies. As a progressive, Osuski was a what they called in those days a religious socialist. He frequently said, if Christianity became more social, socialists would become more Christian. Hmm. Yeah, that was a very common refrain back yeah, then. Yeah, it was, of course. And But Osuski, all of his life, was both a Democrat and a Democratic socialist. And he argued for socialism from a utopian Christian perspective rather than a, the class conflict model of Marxism. So anyway, because Osuski had was this well-known and serious intellectual who had, by the way, I forgot to mention, he was when the uh, Slovak National Uprising took place in the summer of 1944 and was crushed by SS divisions coming in from Germany. Osuski was arrested by the Gestapo and spent three months in harsh interrogation before he was released uh, just around Christmas time in December 1944. Interestingly enough, by the intervention of the Holinka government, who rescued a fellow clergyman, despite the Catholic-Protestant uh, divide. And so Osuski, uh, then his health was broken. It, it took him almost a full year to return to public life. Uh, so he was a confessor of the faith in that respect. But he was targeted by the communists because he was lauded, he was praised, he won prizes, he had recognition, and he'd published a powerful religious uh, critique of, of the materialism of communist theory. And so in 1950, something like the coordination of all cultural institutions to the communist worldview was required. And that finally meant the theological faculties. And we should just point out, it was in 1948 that Czechoslovakia was basically taken over by the Communist Party. So this is, this is two years in, and this is when Stalinism is really ratcheting up in its persecutions within Czechoslovakia. Right. So, so Suski is arrested and removed from the theological faculty. Only Osuski in 1950. And he is internally banished. He's sent back to his village, his hometown. He's forbidden to publish, forbidden to lecture, and forbidden to preach. So at the age of 62, he begins a 25-year uh, enforced retirement. Uh, the following year, 1951, the rest of the theological faculty was purged and replaced by uh, fellow travelers uh, who then dominated the theological fact faculty for the next 40 years. Right, and that was the communist recognition that Osuski was too independent and too powerful, but they could excuse it by him being a bourgeois who had been, you know, a darling of the old so-called democratic system. And that was, they always took out the, the intellectuals and leaders and independent th thinkers. They wouldn't necessarily... Um, kill them, though they often did. And they wouldn't necessarily imprison them, though they often did. But this sort of permanent house arrest was a pretty common strategy, too. Right. And so to end up Osuski's story, and this was a remarkable thing, I think, 
the man who was the dean of the theological faculty in the 90s when I was there was a man named Igor Kish. And Kish was a young pastor in the 1950s, and he was a good typist. And so Osuski, during his banishment, secretly would meet with Kish, and Kish would type as Osuski dictated. Osuski had a 1,000-page handwritten manuscript called wow. a, a Gallery of New Testament Figures. And with carbon paper, Kish made an original in four copies, uh, three copies. Kish has no idea what happened to the other three, but he kept, he was able to keep one carbon copy for himself. Wow. And that's the only extant copy of this. Right. The other three disappeared. And so Kish had it uh, and kept it, preserved it for those 40 plus years under communism. He told me one time the, the uh, secret police uh, raided his apartment and ransacked it, searching for contraband. And he was scared to death that they were going to find this manuscript, but they didn't. He had it well hidden. Wow. And then in the nineteen, then in the early, the first decade of this century, students at the theological faculty rekeyed it, and with the help of the. Uh, Slovak government's endowment for the humanities, they published a beautiful edition. Oh, wow. The title of the book is A Gallery of New Testament Figures. And it's uh, bringing his sociological and psychological uh, and philosophical skills with him. He creates narrative portraits of all the major figures in the New Testament. A very interesting book. And in some ways, the ambivalence in his character is fully on display there. Oh, interesting. How so? Both the, both the humanism and the apocalyptic. It's kind of blended together into one, uh, in his mind, seamless web, though to this outside reader, a very uneasy synthesis. Are there any particular examples you'd like to pull out? Well, I think he understands the Apostle Paul's apocalypticism, but then he also, in his portraits of these figures, indulges in a lot of psychologizing and uh, stuff that today we would find to be pretty awkward. And it's a lot of apologetics, too. The The motif is a skeptical son asking his wise old father, biblical scholar, doubting questions about what's in the Bible. So do you have any sense, I mean, is that your only evidence of where Osuski ended up by the end of his life, how he how he felt about what had become of his nation and its treatment of Christian faith? Or is it only to be sort of gleaned between the lines of this last book? Well, I think, I think several things come to mind here. In spite of being banished, internally exiled, Osuski did not despair. He continued to work. And that, like Luther's, the famous apocryphal story about Luther, what would you do if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow? I'd plant an apple tree. Right? Osuski planted this thousand-page book on figures of the New Testament, <laughs> believing that there would be a future hmm. and that it would come to the light of day. So I think that's a significant testimony uh, to faith in the middle of when you think of a man who had been bishop and leader of the church and leading intellectual and uh, a, a man who showed personal courage in dire times, 
He was also revered as a great preacher at the big church in Bratislava, suddenly being deprived of everything and uh, reduced to an anonymous existence. So that's uh, that shows grace under in dire circumstances. So, and to get back to like the theme of, of this in the last episode, it sounds like even at the worst and most dire times, his faith prompted him to continue to invest in reasoned discourse as, right. as figured by his, the skeptical son and the wise father who's taking the time to, to talk him through these things. That's right. Yeah, I would say that very much. The other thing I would say is that he's kind of a pioneer of what we call today post-liberal narrative theology. Part of liberal theology is the belief that the text does not explain history or nature. Nature or history explains the text. That's the basic uh, hermeneutical inversion going back to Baruch Spinoza and the other fathers of the historical critical method. And by the time Osuski's life is ending, having been through the commentaries on Revelation and Job, Osuski goes forward with this new, what I call, post-liberal, post-critical narrative theology of the Bible, which is simply the idea that a reference is not a representation. Let me say that again. A reference is not a representation. The New Testament refers to something real in history, Jesus of Nazareth. But its references are not representations. They're not mirror images or perfect snapshots or pictures of what really happened or something like that. That's not the way these references are being made. These narratives are instead in service of rendering a character, producing a character into the present of the reader or auditor of these texts. So, you can't really say anything in the New Testament, though it refers to the so-called Jesus of history, Jesus of Nazareth. That's not what it's representing. What it's representing is the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth, who comes as of old into the Galilee of our lives today in order to interact with us as he once did on the seashore of the Lake of Galilee. Hmm. And where did he get that from? Did he sort of independently find it, or was it other influences on him and other people who have together kind of created this this post-liberal movement of the past number of decades? Right. I think, as with Karl Barth, this, uh, it's not like Osuski consciously thought about this. It's what he came to, and it's the way I'm describing what he actually accomplished here. Uh, for the detailed argument, you'd have to read the book, of course, but it's just like Karl Barth, the way Barth uses the Bible in his mature theology. Again, there is a reference to something that happened in history, the event of Jesus, but that reference is not a representation of what happened in history. Uh, the representation is, through this reference to the Jesus of history, that this same one comes as Lord and Savior uh, to readers slash auditors of the biblical text today. That's post-critical narrative theology. Okay. 
Well, let's wrap this up then. So, I mean, we always study history in part to find out how to live today. <laughs> and the the question that drove the past the last episode in this one is is faith to the aid of reason. So, um, what would you draw out of Osuski's example of our bringing our faith to bear in the kind of crisis of reason we're experiencing in our our world now? Are there are there parallels or are there other kinds of um, models or tools that we can gain from Osuski to help us in our time and place? Yeah, I think going all the way back to my doctoral dissertation, uh, where I wrote in conclusion, Christianity today must learn to stand, Christian theology today must learn to stand on its own two feet, the gospel and the Bible. When Osuski was in prison with the Gestapo, he said he had no other friend but the friend who remained with him in this time was the Bible. That from his mother's lap, he had learned the Bible. And all that learning of the Bible remained with him in his darkest hours. Mm -hmm. So I think that Christian theology has to recognize that it no longer has cultural support. Christendom is dead and gone. Theology that nostalgically hungers for the good old days um, of theology as the queen of the sciences <laughs> uh, is a lost cause. And it's, it really is an act of hopelessness to indulge in such nostalgia. We have to deal with the nihilistic worldviews that are being generated by the metaphysics of our time. That's why I wrote a book with an atheist philosopher on Deleuze and Guattari. We have to deal with the reality of our times. Uh, and at the same time, confidently assert the biblical narrative's rendering as a present figure, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Lord and Savior. And I think that's what Osuski, even if he didn't achieve the theoretical clarity on what he was doing, that is, in fact, what he was accomplishing. Okay. So I'm curious. I mean, the way you, you describe it, I could easily imagine someone who didn't know you better taking away from that, like, okay, we've got the Bible as our only friend, and the world has abandoned us. So it could easily turn into a sectarian fundamentalist approach. And I, I know you well enough to know that can't possibly be what you mean. But why don't you spell out how it, using, you know, I suppose, with Osuski's um, own turn against realizing he could not be fundamentalist, how is what you said not that? And and what would it mean for us living in, in and with the world and among other people? You know, I, I want to reframe that question, Sarah, just a little bit. Uh, H. Richard Niebuhr wrote a great book, Christ and Culture, in which he had all these paradigms in the history of Christianity of the relationship of Christ to culture. Christ uh, sanctifying culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture and paradox. paradox. Christ against culture. I'm probably forgetting one. I don't remember anymore. Christ transforming culture, I think. Is the yeah, other Christ transforming culture, right? And I remember at the time I read that book many, many years ago, I, I said to myself, any of these can be true depending upon the circumstances. We don't have to choose between these things. They're all true in a way, or right, they yeah. can be true in particular circumstances which goes back to what I said in the last episode. What we need is not 
a nostalgia for timeless truth. What we need is a serious commitment to the timely truth in our own context here and now. Uh, And that's what theology uh, should be doing as faith coming to the aid of reason. Right. And I suppose the, that that's the antidote to the fundamentalism and the and, antidote to the sectarianism is, as you said before, recognizing that every single person we meet is the object of God's saving mercy, or it is the that is God's intention towards that person. So it doesn't give us permission to check out of their lives or of building society with them, even if it's not the kingdom of God, but only a compromised human society. It's actually an expression of God's mercy and therefore the charity that is required of us. Agreed. Yes, exactly. Right. right. Well, that, of course, always prompts the question of who is my neighbor? And so in a related way, our next episode is going to be on what is a person and therefore who is a person. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.